Don't tell me that man doesn't belong out there. Man belongs wherever he wants to go. And he'll do plenty well when he gets there. Hmm. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Werner von Braun. <laughs> that fit perfectly. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh, hello, Matt. How are you? How is Devon uh, today? Is it snowy? It was a little bit snow this morning. It's freezing cold, but very, very bright sunshine. Beautiful. And did you witness Jupiter and Venus showing off in, um, today? I didn't. Oh. I was on a train all last night, uh, but I did spend about 20 minutes at midnight last night looking at the sky because it was unbelievably clear and beautiful. It's We're getting some cracking clear skies this month. Yeah, um, uh, I'd quite like a few more. So greedy. I've missed quite a few of these astronomical events. You're still jealous, aren't you, about the blood moon? Shut up. So, Matt... Yes. I want to say to you, on this day, 2003, what would you say to me? I'd say it was, unfortunately, one of the worst space flight disasters of all time. Horrible. But um, I think it's good to look back and pay some respects to the brave men and women involved. Of course, we uh, Elon Ramon made it onto our astronaut of the week once. He did. I can't remember what uh, podcast that was. Uh but I didn't realise there was someone called William C. McCool. I mean that, yeah, on there, yeah, American commander, pilot, and astronaut. Yeah, if, if that's not one of the coolest names you'll ever see. Yes, unfortunately, Space Shuttle Columbia, two thousand and three. Yeah, that was that's a that's a bad day. The nail in the coffin of the space shuttle. I would say. Yes, it was not not good. But in much happier news, this week sees. The I guess this is the 53rd anniversary of Luna 9 oh. becoming the first spacecraft to softly land on the moon and take pictures that on the surface. That is a much better thing. Wonderful. Yeah, God, how ace are the, are the Soviet Union lunar missions? Yeah, they're pretty good. Pretty much every week we mention one of them. Yeah, yeah. big no-brainers. Just as I pressed call yeah. to you today, a little bit of space news came through just as we're about to go on air. Go on. And it's definitely worth mentioning. Telesat, which are a Canadian company, yeah. thinking of doing one of these huge um, space constellations, have announced that they're going to do that on board the New Glenn, Ooh. Blue Origin's New Glenn rocket. The CEO, Dan Goldberg, said, Blue Origin's powerful New Glenn rocket is a disrupted force in the launch services market, which in turn will help Telesat disrupt the economics and performance of global broadband connectivity. <laughs> so that now means Blue Origin's got five customers, Utelsat, SkyPerfect, and MooSpace, and five launches for OneWeb. They're smashing it, aren't they? And as Bob Smith, I can't believe his name's Bob Smith. That is so... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that is pretty you unbelievable. You wouldn't want to look that up in the phone book, would you? No, Bob Smith <laughs> must can't be his real name. the The CEO of Blue Origin said, "New Glenn seven meter fairing 
with its huge mass and volume capabilities, is a perfect match for Telesat's constellation plans while reducing large costs per satellite. Cheers, Bob. It's notable that Ariane 6 is the only one of these new sort of heavy launch vehicles other than New Glenn that's able to has, that's able to have um, attracted new customers. So uh, Japan's H3, ULA's Vulcan and uh, Northrop's Omega A, none of those have got uh, new customers yet. But Ariane 6 and New Glenn do. Every time I hear you say Omega A, I always worry about what vitamins I've had today. <laughs> it's not even Omega A, is it? It's it's Omega. I think I'm all right. I've had carrots, broccoli, and a multivitamin tablet, so I think I'm smashing it today. UK Space Agency report. So yes, there's been the UK Space Agency have had an independent UK space industry size and health report. Here we go. And compared to the 2016 version of said report. Income is up by over a billion from 13.7 to 14.8 billion pounds. What about employment, though? Up from 38,500 to almost 42,000 people. Okay, sure. But what about exports? They're up half a billion pounds from 5 Get out of here. To 5.5. What? That's pretty, pretty amazing, isn't it? The UK space industry, I reckon other than us two, it's, it's highly underrated, isn't it? That is well, a big, it, big old industry right there. It's booming, isn't it? Clearly. That is rosy, and I, I love hearing that. The future's bright, Matthew. Yeah, indeed. Well, of course, we're off to uh, one of the places this week, aren't we? We are. We're going up to Scotland, to the Orbex. To have a, a little nosy round there, so that's going to be super exciting. We're going to the Highlands. Hey. We're going to get some fantastic interviews. Um, and so please, if you have any questions for Orbex, please let us know, and uh, we'll do our best to answer answer them. Yeah, you've got a couple of days to get them over. Yeah, so Orbex, of course, are one of these 39 new companies that have cropped up since 2012. It's amazing. It has been rapid. This is the confidence that's still in the sector. Here we go. So 73% of organisations are expecting growth over the next three years. That's a big number. 48% of those are expecting it to be more than 10%. And the workforce is expected to grow. And 93% of all the organisations are predicting job numbers to grow or maintain their current level. So that is pretty rosy it's a beautiful thing long may it continue let's hope it does stick to that that'd be fantastic news for us here in blighty elsewhere however let's go back to canada maxar technologies the beleaguered maxar technologies uh, as we mentioned a couple mm. of weeks ago space systems laurel ssl are part of that um are part of maxar and uh, they've just terminated their agreement with darpa to develop satellite servicing systems so these are these things that fly up and are able to uh, maybe refuel or mend parts on these highly expensive satellites so you don't have to keep you know relaunching new ones Um, and they've pulled out of that whole thing because they want to focus their resources in other words they're running out of money on uh, ensuring optimal returns for other 
of their large capital priorities like worldview and stuff focus like that. its resources is is that is brilliant corporate talk isn't it <laughs> yeah focusing our resources <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh my God, we don't have enough money for all that of this genius. stuff. Genius! I love corporate talk. It makes me laugh. Well, this is corporate talk as well. For for DARPA, it's going to be a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, because now they've got to like re rejig the entire program. But uh, I, I was I was thinking, uh, does this mean that the whole concept of servicing these enormous satellites, whether that's actually if people are considering that as game over. Mm. But I, I don't think they do. So I think I, I've been reading a few things and people say, no, you shouldn't see that as the, the nail in the coffin of the concept. Well, I, I really hope not because I think, I think that that kind of – it's obvious, isn't it? Like why – it's so expensive to launch things. Why just sort of when, when they've run out of fuel, they just don't do anything? And actually, they probably only need a bit of fuel and the odd – part repaired it'd be amazing if you had some kind of on orbit repair system well it would be amazing and i tell you what that's definitely one of the questions that we should ask all, all becks next week see if they want to answer it there's another problem as well with oh, OneWeb this time on. one, uh, one of one of new glenn's customers OneWeb uh said that there's a bit of a problem with the soyuz that flies out of french guiana oh, what's occurring so uh, they were supposed to have a mid-February launch, so quite soon, one web flying out of French Guiana. But uh, it looks like there's a problem with the frigate upper stage, one of the, the Russian space tug. And uh, technicians are hurriedly trying to find out how they're going to repair it. Oh, yeah. And that, so there's no, new, there's no new date for that at That's all. That's not good. That's pretty depressing. Now, this, this, this one you should love. Here we go. The China's Changi 4 lunar lander. Oh, finally has reawoken after its long lunar night. Get in. Long lunar night. Yes. That sounds like a prog song. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's it's a work off my new album, Thinking Round Corners. (laughs) Oh, yes. I will be putting a down payment on the first copy. That is amazing. So it's back in action on Wednesday, a day after the U2, U2-2 rover woke up shortly after sunrise. Says here, temperatures fell to minus 190 degrees Celsius, a bit colder than expected. Remember, you quizzed me about what, what temperatures it yeah. was going to fall to. We said 180, I didn't think we? We did. But no, it's colder. So, why is it colder, Jamie? I'll tell you why. Because Chinese scientists said differences from the near side in lunar soil composition could be the reason for the harsher cold. Might just be as simple Matt, as that. Do you know what I read? Just on a tangent, do you know what I read on the internet that I massively missed last year? I didn't read this story. I don't know mm-hmm. if you did. There's a load of CO2 inside the rocks and underground in the soil on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Someone was talking about how we need to get an atmosphere there. And one of the ways mm-hmm. uh, suggested by Elon Musk on Twitter was to, was to, to nuke Mars. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and then all of this CO2 will, uh, you know, come up and, uh, and give us a lovely atmosphere. What do you think about that? Uh, I think maybe we should check for uh, indigenous life forms first. Maybe. I was going to say, can we check that we that there is not life there before we blast it all to hell? Planetary protection, anyone? You know what I mean. <laughs> like, I want. Isn't 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 explosions in space meant to be really bad? <laughs> Let alone nuclear bombs. Well, no, a nuclear bomb on on Mars, it'd be all right. 
Yeah, you said it like, oh, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> Just who knows? That I, I wanted to go back on prog rock, Jamie. Because oh, I'm going to I'm going to do a shameless plug here. Oh the, yeah, you know you know our theme music. Yeah, it, it features it features a. The drummer on that is is a chap called Ian Farragher, who's just released oh, a I love Ian. prog rock album by his new band Quantum Pig. Quantum Pig. Quantum Pig. Their their new album and the label that it's on is from one mm. of our former guests, John Mitchell, who no uh, who played at the Isa Rocks Festival. My God, the circle is now complete. So yeah, so the podcast theme music and a former guest. And one of our best mates, Ian's new band, Quantum Pig. Go check it out. Big up yourself, Ian. It's a work of art. Please go and check it out. <laughs> Excellent. Are available from all good record shops. That and Thinking Around Corners, available right now. Actually, I should point out that the singer is a prolific author. <laughs> Who actually? I've read his books as well, that, and and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well. He he's a futurologist. So yeah, Mark Stevenson's Mark the singer. Stevenson, okay. Yeah, and he, and he also wrote a book called "We Do Things Differently: The Outsiders Rebooting Our World." So yes, he's written two wow space related uh, um, futurism books, and he's also on that. So yeah, another okay. another link really. Great. So Jamie, what's been happening with your your favourite, Virgin Galactic. Well, it's not my favourite, but I'm very intrigued by it. It's uh, so, so commercial flights for Virgin could begin mm. in mid-2019. That's this year, Matt. Yeah. Like five months' time. I am aware of the year. So old Branners said, I will hope to go up in the middle of this year myself. We've got another test flight in a handful of weeks taking place from Mojave. Then we'll have another one a few weeks later, and then another one. And then we move everything to New Mexico, where we have a beautiful spaceport. One that uh, I don't know if I've told you, Matt, but I've been there. <laughs> no, you've never told me that story. Um, it's where I bought my ultra geek t shirt that says, Give me my space. Ooh, that's a nice t shirt. Now, yeah. Uh, I'm going to pick you up on your your Richard Branson um, uh, impression. It was okay, yeah. although I think it was slightly it was too manly. Richard Branson's got oh. a slightly more he's got a slightly more um, effeminate kind of uh, British posh accent, hasn't he? But you can so work I'll try on it again. Then no, you can work on it. You can work on it for next time. Because let's okay. face it, Virgin Galactic are going to be in the news quite a bit this year. I oh, they definitely are. Uh, Jamie, I'm going to do the bad side of all this. Oh, go on then. Virgin Galactic have laid off dozens of their employees because, I saw that, uh, yeah, yeah, because they're because they're moving because they're going to be moving from Mojave to this New Mexico spaceport. Uh, so mm. that's about forty people, quite a sort of big chunk of their space force. Space force, I like that of their workforce, <laughs> of their space force. Although forty people doesn't sound much, but but for a an organisation like that, you would have thought that that is a big chunk. Yeah, I mean, it's they're, they're nowhere near the size of, say, SpaceX, mm. which was hundreds of employees, wasn't it? But there's a lot. There's been quite a lot of quite a lot of job losses, haven't they, in the in the space industry already this year? There has. Yeah, people have been trimming down, unfortunately. 
well, I'm going to fly all the way from uh, um, Mexico now to uh, we're staying in South America, actually, I suppose, <laughs> to French yeah. Gu- to French Guiana, to oh, uh, where uh, they've qualified the um, actual qualification model of the P120C, which as oh. as those who've been following the podcast, P120C, of course, is the the new booster stage of the Vega C. And also the solid rocket boosters for the Ariane Six. So this is that's right. Yeah. So this is a very very important item for the future yeah. of European space launch, to say the least. It really is. No anomalies were seen, and according to initial recorded data, the performance met all expectations. Hundred and forty-two tons of fuel. Yeah. And I've seen where that fuel's made in these huge Kenwood Chef mixer bowls, which I might put. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a little picture yeah. up because because they look absolutely incredible. Like just a huge, you know, just looks like a big kitchen mixer, and it mixes this solid propellant. It's really does cool. it say s- slow, fast, and pulse on the <laughs> dial? <laughs> it does, and you have to you have to kind of play around with the plastic lid until it slots in oh, properly. I love that. Very very irritating. And you stick carrots in the top. And they bounce out and smack you. Yeah, you've said that before. You're going to love this one. We're going to go move away from rocket stuff. Oh, thank God. What are we going to talk about? We're going to go into into the solar system now. Now we're talking. So, according to Antronic A. Cephalian and Jihad Artuma. Wow, okay. Uh, they they have yeah they have written a new paper called the shepherding in a self gravitating disc of transneptunian objects T and O's to you and me Jamie T and O's it's a coffee book it's a coffee book <laughs> and uh, they uh, it's it's a it's it's of course a journal in the American Astronomical Society published but the other day and they're saying they're just there's just no need to evoke planet nine necessarily it looks like they've come up with a a competing theory for what's happening to these strange unusual orbits in these famous tnos that are moving around like they're being shepherded by some object that currently people think is this ninth planet but yeah according to these two one, a PhD student at Cambridge's Department of Applied Mathematics, who is Atranik Safilian, uh, that it, it's actually this big disk of transnunian objects. So like a, a relatively massive, moderately, moderately eccentric disk. In other words, it's not, it's not rotating in the normal plane of the solar system. Uh, can effectively counteract apps precession induced by the outer planets and in the process shepherd highly eccentric members of its population into nearly stationary configurations that are anti-aligned with the disc itself. Okay, I'm going to need to re- re-listen to that a few times, I think. Um, but, <laughs> but can you tell me what apps procession is? An apps procession? Well, apps, we've talked about apps was actually, I believe, a space... Remind me. was a space word of the week. It's the extremes of an elliptical orbit. So peri... Ah. So remember periapsis yes. and apoapsis? So yes, yes I do. So um, yeah, at, the, at those extremes where objects come near and far in, in their elliptical orbit, God knows, it's way beyond my orbital mechanics, Jamie. 
But the interesting and up, mine. The, the interesting upshot is, and this undoubtedly took like some absolutely gnarly maths beyond belief to work out, is that yes, we might not need this planet nine at all, which would kind of make sense because we've not observed planet nine, and we do know that this kind of planetary disk is quite likely, and not only that, in their paper they actually showed that it's quite a natural thing for there to be this kind of disk in a solar system because it's it's looking like that sort of thing happens in other solar systems, extrasolar debris disks they've been looking at, and a similar sort of thing. So this could very, very well answer the question about what's happening. Of course, it actually could be a combination of the both there might be a, a Planet Nine and this disc. Well, I mean, it's all very interesting. And, uh, you know, it's all well and good for them to say that we don't need Planet Nine. But what if I need Planet Nine, Matt? <laughs> what about me? Well, I don't... Science doesn't care about your feelings, Jamie. Is it, is it, is it not all about me? <laughs> science doesn't care. You need to suck it up and become a man. Next, you'll say the universe doesn't care about me. <laughs> It doesn't. And that the laws of nature can't be suspended in my favour. I mean, whatever next. Jamie, you'll love this one as well. I, oh, I, I, yes. I, I love this story. I absolutely love it. I think it was Senator John McCain did some form of freedom of information request of, of yeah. what, what, what the Defence Intelligence Agency has been spending its money on. Okay. Uh, and for between 2007 and 2012... The DIA had, had spent $22 million on sci-fi type activity. <laughs> right? What? Uh, it, was used, it was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Uh, I know you know wow. it as the AA tip. Oh, of course. Uh, and it sounds to me, that, I mean, this is the class, this sounds to me like a sort of uh, jobs for the boys, depending on what, uh, you know, what states you come from particularly if you mm. came from Nevada for example but here oh, is yeah. here are some of the here are some of the papers that were written as part of this uh, and you know some of the research and it, it's very very cool for example advanced nuclear propulsion for manned deep space missions that's that's a fairly you know mundane wow. one what about yeah. advanced space propulsion based on vacuum space time metric engineering <laughs> but it gets better Invisibility cloaking, transversible wormholes, stargates, and negative energy, high-frequency oh, yes. gravitational wave communication, anti-gravity for aerospace. <laughs> the, oh, this <laughs> gets better. Yeah. Get, an introduction to the statistical Drake equation. Metallic glass. Aerospace applications of programmable matter. I, I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? It just goes on and on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, laser light craft nano satellites. That's all right, isn't it? I like. I like this one. State of the art and evolution of high energy laser weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, and negative mass propulsion. Well. I think it's brilliant. I'll tell you what's a really cool one. Presumably this is just like a gamer's paradise, is the 
Cognitive limits on simultaneous control of multiple unmanned spacecraft. Oh, it's the new VR, definitely. What's the name of, is it Ender's Game? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's kind of that, isn't it, really? <laughs> I'm not a gamer myself, but I would be if that came out. It's one of those, it's one of those films that almost works but doesn't quite. There's a few of them. One last opportunity for a rover. What would you think I meant? Well, interesting you ask, because engineers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you probably know them as JPL, Matt, Mm -hmm, in Pasadena, mm -hmm. California, have begun transmitting a new set of commands to the Opportunity rover in an attempt to compel the 15-year-old Martian explorer to contact Earth. Opportunity rover, we compel you to talk to us. Well, check this out. The new commands, which will be beamed down to the rover in the next several weeks, address a low-likelihood event that could have occurred aboard Opportunity, preventing it from transmitting. So the rover's last communication with Earth was received June 10th, 2018, as a planet-wide dust storm blanketed the solar-powered rover's location on Mars. It'd be amazing if Opportunity woke from the dead. We could call it the Jesus rover then. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'd probably get into a little bit of trouble. Oh, yeah, we would. I'm not holding my breath. Put it like that. I'm, I'm optimistic that it'll happen. There you go. Okay. I'm sending Jack- all my laser-powered <laughs> weapon energy to opportunity. Yeah, I think if we think hard enough, it will mend the rover. To be fair, that my Rover 75 got through its MOT this week. Oh my God, you must have prayed as well. There, there is hope for the Opportunity Rover. So what's happening in orbit, Matt? Remember that scene in American Beauty where there's a, where there's a plastic bag being blown around in a car park? and it's There's just so to... much beauty in the world that... And it's supposed to be profound. I can't take it. That. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a similar sort of thing going on in orbit. There's, a, there's an object called A10BMLZ right uh, which is doing that similar behavior up in orbit it's actually a london based observatory the northolt branch observatory the nbo yeah that have been kind of been studying this and and it's and it's <laughs> flitting about chaotically because it seems to be this large piece of metallic foil that's been left over from some rocket launch which they don't really know which rocket launch it was yeah. but it's in this chaotic orbit, so you don't know whether it's going to re-enter or continue going into orbit because the sun, the the sun, the radiation pressure from the sun is is blasting it around and and pushing it one way and t'other. It really is. I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, be be, be good to see it out in space. I wonder how dangerous it is as a as one of these objects. Or whether it... If it's very unpredictable, I wonder if they're thinking of you know shooting it down, Matt. Shooting it. <laughs> Yeah, I reckon what? that'd be pretty pretty hard to do. Well, if you're going to nuke Mars, then why not? Just get this on the way. N- nuke a piece of foil. Yeah, def- definitely seems safe. This is a beauty <laughs> story, this one. Dr. Jeremy Bellucci from the Swedish Museum of Natural History and Professor Alexander Nemchin of Curtin University have uh, been looking at a moon yeah. rock that came back from the Apollo 14 mission. It may have come from Earth. Uh-huh. Now, before conspiracy theorists go, eh, I told you that no moon rock came back from the moon oh. and it all came from Earth, uh, it's much more interesting than that. So th- th- there's quite a few words in here that you'll like, like 
a felsite clast, <laughs> which, which for you and me, Jamie, is a light-coloured volcanic oh. piece wow. of rock fragment. So it, when you've got one of those sort of big rocks and there's like a bit in there that's a slightly different colour, maybe light colour, it's called a felsite clast. Uh-huh. And there's one of these in uh, in wow. in the lunar breccia that Apollo 14 sample 14321, which has until now been interpreted as an imbrium ejector. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has petrographic, which is a you know rock detail, detail in the rock, and chemical features that are consistent with formation conditions commonly assigned to both lunar and, more interestingly, terrestrial environments. Which, which basically leaves to two hypotheses Ooh. unresolvable at the moment. So, the history of the clast may be a relatively oxidising conditions were developed in a lunar magma at the base of the lunar crust to form the zircon grains and their host felsite. Subsequent e- excavation by the imbrium impact introduced more typical lunar features to the clast, but preserved primary chemical characteristics in zircon and some other accessory minerals. However, the hypothesis fails to explain the high pressure of crystallisation not seen on the moon before. Or, or, much more excitingly, alternatively, the felsite and its zircon crystallised on Earth at a modest depth of around 12 miles in the continental crust, where oxidising, low-temperature, fluid-rich conditions are common, then the clast was ejected from the Earth during a large impact, entrained in the lunar regolith as terrestrial meteorite, with the evidence of reducing conditions introduced during its incorporation into the imbrium ejector and host breccia. And then, of course, along comes either Shepard or Mitchell to pick it up and bring it back to Earth. That is insane. It's cool, isn't it? I just think that's wicked. I'd like a picture of this rock. Can we put one up on Instagram, please? Not only is there a picture of the rock in the laboratory with a little arrow to this felsite yeah. clast, there's also a picture of it lying on the lunar surface that the Apollo 14 astronauts took before they picked it up. So, yes, I will put those up because it's really interesting. That is ace. Stick it up, son. Have you ever heard of the National Space Society, the NSS? I have. So they're proposing a transparently operating civil US space guard. Here we go. So that's not to be confused with Space Force. No. But it's more like a Coast Guard patrolling the space waters and engaging the international space community in collaborative efforts. That sounds less aggressive. Yes, it does, doesn't it? That they will go round and police, actually police the kind of space water. So if people are doing naughty Norman things, they'll actually go out and do stuff about it. In fact, one of the illustrations that they that come, came with this report is of a US space guard cutter, like a spacecraft with rescue security and enforcement capabilities, just like the, you know, just like the Coast Guard. Well, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because if you imagine in 100 years' time how many things are going to be going on in terms of commercial hmm. and government space programmes, that, that, that people are going to be doing some illegal stuff. It's just inevitable, especially yeah. as technology gets easier and better. 
I mean, what's to stop me, Matt, in 100 years launching a satellite from the app on my phone to uh, sneakily go and mine an asteroid for my own gain? You know, who's going to stop me? I'll tell you who. The Space Guard. The Space Guard. And it looks like they, they're suggesting it grow out of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uniformed branch, of which I had no idea existed. Well, I'm hoping that they're going to be a little bit like the uh, the police in Blade Runner, you know, in their flying cars, making mm. their little unicorns and matchsticks with penises, you know. Matchsticks Sorry. with penises? I, I don't know. I just went off, off <laughs> completely off topic, didn't I? <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> Matt, you haven't it's... seen Blade Runner enough if you don't know what I mean by matchstick with penises. You need to go back and watch it. Matchsticks yeah. with penises? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send you a text while we're while we're actually talking, but you carry on. So I thought we'd get in a little bit of Indian space news before we do the second part of our Gurbir Singh interview. Oh, yes. The wonderful Gurbir Singh. So, Here we go. Uh, yeah, so India's space agency, ISRO, yeah. ISRO, has opened a new human spaceflight centre in... Get in. Bengaluru, which is next door to the ISRO headquarters. Oh. Yes, and they're going to be developing the country's Gaganyan Gaganyan crude spacecraft. I'm sure Gabir Singh said that much better in the the interview. Uh, They're going to develop the country's Gaganyan crewed spacecraft, uh-huh. uh, and uh, and ISRO plans to launch the first crewed Gaganyan mission by the end of 2021, which I think is in- unbelievably ambitious, particularly considering Prime Minister Narendra Modi said it was 2022. So the design's going to be finished soon, so that'd be interesting. Look out for that one. And ISRO are keen to send women on that maiden crude voyage in 2021 as oh, at least at least thing. one woman on that uh, on that space flight so let's get the second half of the gurbir singh interview out there to the baying public let's do it ikute the interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space india's human uh baseline program so they've got um uh the go-ahead they've got the funding and it's going to cost them 1.4 billion dollars for achieving this um, initial flight they haven't really they have decided that it's going to be um they're getting some support from russia as a deal that was signed recently during president putin's visit to india and um, they are likely to conduct two um uncrewed test flights and I spoke to uh, the person who's in charge of the recently established human spaceflight department in, in India, uh, a lady called um, Lalithambika. Wonderful, very soft-spoken, uh, but uh, very competent, experienced scientist and engineer. And she's heading this project and they plan to launch two uh, uncrewed flights starting late 2020 and then before the um, actual flight uh, of either two or three uh, people in, in uh, a capsule for a low Earth orbit of about 
a week or two weeks um, mission. A lot of these things have yet to be defined. It's very early stages. It's <laughs> just cracking on with it. And if you think about uh, 1.4 billion US dollars, <clears throat> I, my view is, uh, you know, like you and everybody else, and very enthusiastic and great to see that India is taking this big step. But I think the money that this should wait a bit, and that money should be spent on perhaps uh, building capacity within India at the moment. Uh, India launches about six or seven um, launch vehicles um, each year. It's not very many. And uh, the scientists are not very well paid. <laughs> One of the reasons why India is so cheap. But I think uh, uh, I would have preferred to see that investment go elsewhere. But nevertheless, it's anything to do with human spaceflight, of course, is exciting. So I am looking forward to it. But it's uh, uh, 2022 when we should see the first one. No, I, I, I'm exactly the same as you. I, I see spaceflight programs and I'm enthused by them just full stop. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind yeah. of, it's uh, particularly, yeah, and like you said, particularly the human ones. And, and, and it's, but yeah, it's, it's quite easy, isn't it, to spend huge amounts of money on human spaceflight when. There's some amazing science that could be done for a sim- similar mm. sorts of money. Um, tell us a little bit about the, yeah the India's moon mission. Okay, so um, the India's second mission to the moon, mm. called Chandrayaan two, uh, has been delayed several times. It should be launching uh, in January um, 2019, although I suspect it might slip to February. 2019. But just a just quick word on Chandrayaan 1. Mm. Uh, in my mind, it's probably been to date um, the most successful uh, of India's mission um, so far. It was uh, launched in 2008 and it had uh, instruments on board from several different um, countries. It's huge collaborative, internationally collaborative project program, and it was very successful in terms of uh, what they ended up uh, being able to, to, do, to do with it. You might have heard of this uh, uh, launcher that India uses, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, PSLV. Mm-hmm. Um, the, in order to get the slightly larger payload that uh, they wanted to the moon, they actually enhanced the launcher, and this is when the PSLV XL came about, and this is just a, a matter of adding additional boosters uh, on the side, and so that was one of the innovations that uh, came about at that time. The um, Chandrayaan-1 mission contained two parts. One of them was the moon impactor probe, which uh, was a very important, from an India's perspective, step to take because they were able to claim that uh, the Indian flag now resides on the surface of the moon. Um, that went very successfully. The whole project and the whole mission was very successful, even though uh, the two-year mission was cut short to about 11 months after some hardware failure. But incredibly uh, impressive and successful mission. But this was 2008, and the social media hadn't quite set in then, so it didn't quite get the coverage that uh, it would have had today. Mm. Chandrayaan 2 is um, uh, something that India's been talking about ever since mm. 2009. Initially, it was going to be a joint mission with Russia. Uh, they were going to provide the lander. Uh, but in the end, 
uh, Russia, not least because of their Phobos grunt mission uh, failure, decided to slow down. And in the end, India decide, decided to go go it alone. So Chandrayaan-2 will be a, an orbiter, a lander, and a tiny rover. And it is uh, expecting to land uh, in terms of lunar day early in the morning. And lunar day lasts about a couple of weeks because it doesn't have any other source of power once on the surface of the moon other than solar panels. And that's why the launch windows are one month apart. They don't want to arrive there just before sunset. They'll only get a day or two of sunlight before the batteries run out. And at the moment, although uh, it's unlikely that uh, India's lunar rover will survive uh, a lunar night, there's a possibility that it could and China's uh, rover, uh, which uh, has been remarkably successful, did do that. Uh, not quite sure of the technology that was used there, but um, India's rover, uh, so long in the making, uh, should be on the surface early in the new year. And in not expected to survive more than the uh, initial two weeks of operation. That would still be an ex- uh, extremely successful, wouldn't it, to, to soft land on, on the moon? It's not many people have done it. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the reasons for the delays, uh, it has been uh, they've uh, redesigned the, the lander. It's the first time that India's built a throttleable engine, which is necessary for when you're approaching a, a soft landing. And this is the sort of technology that uh, they will need later on. In addition to um, lunar missions, they already have in the pipeline plans to re- revisit Mars with uh, Mars Orbiter Mission 2. And it's not quite clear that um, they might have a rover on, on board for that. Um, and the other mission that uh, India has also uh, announced about a year ago is a mission to the, to the planet Venus. Again, it'll be an orbiter, uh, and in fact, they made one of these uh, announcement of opportunity where different um, organizations can contribute a science, scientific payload to go to, to Venus uh, on this spacecraft. But what's interesting is um, China, if you look at what's happened uh, in India's space program, is followed quite closely, certainly in, uh, in the mid-noughties. India and China arrived at the moon about the same time, although China was there first. Mm. Uh, the motions to get human spaceflight uh, going uh, kicked, up, kicked off about the same time when China in 2001 landed, uh, sorry, launched their very first uh, astronaut into space. Since then, China's had a, a space station, about four um, human uh, space flights launched. Uh, it's got a lander on the moon as uh, perhaps the most exciting uh, mission in the near future. You know, we're talking uh, here today on the 5th of December. In mm-hmm. three days' time, China will be launching its uh, mission uh, to the, the moon. Um, and amazingly, it's going to be landing on the far side of the moon, which nobody's ever done before. And as part of the preparation, because it's on the far side, there's no direct communication. Uh, in May earlier this year, 
China launched a satellite, a relay satellite, which is in uh, unique orbit mm. so that uh, can see and provide the relay for um, the lander when it lands on the far side of the moon uh, later on this month. Yeah, it's an incredible mission, isn't it, that one? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really fascinating, the fact that um, China tends to think much more globally um, and it tends to think much more in, in ahead of time. China's space program has always had a, a bolder, bigger ambition and they've been very successful in terms of not only their um, science missions but also the human spaceflight programs and in this particular case the return to the moon started off with a mission back in may this year when they launched their relay satellite and that is uh, quite a unique um, mission in a very unique orbit and very successful with that it's there it's been operating successfully and once um, this um, lunar rover arrives on the far side of the moon it should be communicating with earth through that relay satellite absolutely astounding yeah incredible <laughs> it's an incredible mission do do india see china as their biggest kind of space rival is the, is there a pretty intense rivalry between the two or is it nothing like say the the soviets and the americans it's nothing like that kind of rivalry <laughs> The way I see it, uh, I do see it a bit like the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. And in, this, in some ways, you know, um, you and I who quite like to see these things happening, sadly, this is the kind of rivalry that makes them happen. Mm. Uh, I think somebody said once that, uh, you know, without um, Gagarin, there would have been no Armstrong. And certainly looking at... Uh, the chapter I deal with on human spaceflight in, in India, you can see how it's been modulated with what's been happening in China. And I don't know if you heard the, um, in addition to the Chinese um, space station, uh, uh, announcement of opportunity, which the uh, UN hosted, th there are now several payloads from different countries that China will host uh, on board the Chinese space station. They're just going through the selection process right now. But apart from that, China announced that the very first non-Chinese to be flying aboard their space station will be an astronaut from Pakistan. And I think that tells you oh, wow. <laughs> the kind of uh, uh, dynamics uh, and politics in play, because I don't think um, they would certainly not have invited um, an Indian astronaut. Um, and uh, it's a pity, because I think India and China could work um, so well together, uh, not only in terms of achievements in space, but also help reduce tensions here on Earth as well. No, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the great things, isn't it, about space on the whole is that it's fairly, it's been very, very collaborative compared to, say, other political situations. Um, but, of course, China are locked out of doing anything with the Americans, whereas India aren't. Has that, has that, has that been a, a beneficial for the, for the Indian Space Agency? Yeah, I mean, India right now has um, uh, a couple of projects underway in collaborative work with uh, with NASA. Um, 
I was quite intrigued by the NASA administrator at the IAC in Bremen. Um, he was very positive um, he, uh, about India. Mm. Uh, he credited India with the discovery of water uh, on, on, uh, on the moon. This was a finding that came out of one of the instruments on board Chandrayaan-1. And interestingly, the instrument that did this discovery was a NASA instrument. And he, uh, NASA administ administrator Jim Bridenstine, mm. went out of his way and he uh, done it several times uh, whenever I listened to him on TV. Uh, he's very positive about India. And I, uh, he, he was at a press conference, again, at the IAC, and I asked him about this collaboration, or rather the prevention of collaborative work that uh, the U.S., through Congress, uh, has uh, stifled the collaborative project in space between U.S. and China, and asked him if he, was, uh, if he could see any light at the end of the tunnel for that. He was a seasoned politician. Mm -hmm. And he said a lot of words, but he didn't commit to himself, commit to anything. And I think what he was saying is, you know, it's one of those things that's in the hands of the politicians. But he, I got the feeling that he's, uh, he would like to see further engagement from China in space. And he would rather not uh, see the propagation of this, what's called the Wolf Amendment, mm. I think, that prevents China and U.S. collaborating in space. But yes, you, you're quite right. China, India doesn't have that prohibition. Although um, I thought, you know, just before India and China signed that deal about getting support for India, India was support for India's human spaceflight from Russia. I thought they might come to uh, the European Space Agency or indeed America. But no, they went to, to Russia mm. because I guess they had some. Um, some historical connections there and of course it's a package deal they did some deals uh, that was an element of the deal that they signed which included other military hardware purchases I think as yeah well. and I think Russia's doing quite a lot of outreach isn't it at the moment because it's the Russian space program isn't going particularly well as, as far as I can make out it's it's so presumably they're they're reaching out to as many partners as possible to kind of bolster that I think you're right. Um, and the bottom line, sadly, is cost. And I think India looked at the various options and deals available. And the one that came from Russia uh, was the one that uh, was most attractive. And that's why they went with them. I'm going to do a bit of wild speculation now. And we know that uh, a lot of countries now, well, a lot, uh, yeah, a lot of countries have started or, or large states have started to put together their global positioning systems um, uh, or global navigation systems. Um, now, this and this is wild speculation, it looks like uh, uh, Britain are going to get kicked out of Galileo and, and said that they want to go it alone. China have got a global navigation system. Will Are India thinking of doing a global navigation system? And do you think, therefore, that Britain is now poised to kind of help them with that and be part of something that they create, maybe? Uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, you, you say wild speculation. It's not necessarily that wild anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the things that go on these days. But... Um, India already has this seven-satellite configuration for a regional navigational system that covers only India. Um, and they've always had 
aspirations to make it global, but it's just a huge cost mm. that prevented them so far, along with the capacity to 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 launch the uh, the spacecraft. But it, it's um, so as part of Brexit. Um, UK is not going to be taking part in the Galileo project, which, as you say, is nearing completion now. So it's a huge undertaking, but Britain has that kind of economy that could potentially do it. And if you think back to what happened during the uh, ooh, late 50s when um, uh, Britain was trying to develop its own nuclear program and uh, it didn't get the support from anybody else, certainly not from America, <clears throat> to whom uh, it had contributed a lot of uh, information and research in the early days. And then they took a deep breath and said, yes, we're going to develop our own nuclear uh, program here in Britain. And I thought then um, that uh, this was just, I'm sure a lot of people thought then that this was a ridiculous undertaking because it was so expensive. Mm. But, you know, they did it. So I thought... <laughs> Britain's idea of going uh, alone to develop a global navigational satellite system um, forced as a result of Brexit, as it happens. But now I'm thinking more, um, it could, could it, they could pull it off. Mm. Sure, they might get uh, uh, other Commonwealth countries. Certainly, Australia has been uh, considered. And Japan also has a very small regional uh, global navigational satellite system. So it could be Australia, Japan, and India uh, could at least uh, be partners in this British-led project. So uh, I think uh, you're not potentially as wild as you might think. Mm. Well, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? And it would certainly open up, yeah, some really good collaborative. Because we've not even mentioned the Japanese. It's another regional space <laughs> space agency, I suppose, over in that part of the world. That's um, we've not even mentioned them, have we? Really, I'm, presumably India don't see don't have any kind of real rivalry with Japan in the same way that China do. No, in fact, um, in addition to uh, America and Russia or USSR, in the early days, India um, got support from uh, a guy called Otikawa, uh, who came to India and supported Vikram Sarabhai in the early days when they were developing their own launch, uh, solid propellant launch systems. Um, he was talking to India about how you could develop what he called pencil rockets, very, very small rockets, but that was in the very early days of 1963-64. So the connections with uh, Japan for India go back a very long way. And indeed, uh, one of the guys I met at um, uh, the IAC in Bremen uh, was from JAXA. And he was telling me about uh, a joint program that uh, JAXA has with India. It's called Celine R., and it's a Japanese mission that uh, will go to back to the moon. Uh, they've been to the moon before. And uh, India will build the lander for that mission. It's in very early stages, but uh, Japanese and Indian space programs have a long history, and I'm sure they have a, a hopeful future too. That's really exciting, isn't it, for the Indian Indian Space Agency? It seems to have a, quite a lot of friends all around the all around the world that they can collaborate with. So they're, they're in a very unique position, I suppose, in that sense. 
Uh, and if you think, um, one of the things that um, Rakesh Sharma, who I went to meet, um, one of the abiding things that uh, uh, I remember from my conversation with him, he was saying, you know, when we go back to the moon, we shouldn't come as uh, Americans or Russians or Chinese. We should come as representatives of uh, the human race. And one of the abiding uh, messages from the ISC in Bremen was this overwhelming uh, desire for every nation to collaborate with 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 others, and I think when we do go back to the moon, which is a huge undertaking, or indeed go to Mars, it makes sense not only um, economically um, but also in terms of making it happen, just the scale of activities that are required, but also from what really should happen from an idealistic point of view. When we go out to the planets, we should go out as uh, representatives of, uh, of human, human, humanity rather than representatives of individual nations. Awesome and, and very well said. Um, when, you, when you were researching the book... What was your favourite incident, or favourite interview, or or favourite thing that you uncovered while writing? Oh, I could give you a few examples, but I'll just give you one. Um, one of the um, things you discover when you research India and rockets is uh, this story about Tipu Sultan, who uh, in uh, the southern part of India, in Mysore, used uh, rockets. Uh, to uh, against the colonial power Britain at that time, and um, he wasn't successful. Uh, but um, uh, out of that um, famous battle in 1799 of Siri uh, some of the rockets uh, that were used came back to England, and William Congreve developed those rockets, and the story of how rockets were used in uh, in England at that time began from those beginnings. So the, you had this period of um, uh, rockets in India in 1799, and then the rocket, first rocket in launched from India in 1963. And well, I was surprised to learn uh, that actually in 1930s India, there was one guy called Stephen. Smith, who was testing rockets, and he was <laughs> the only Indian, as far as I can find, who was doing this, and he was testing rockets to delivery to deliver mail. And you, you may recall the rocket mail uh, fab uh, fad existed for quite a while, and it wasn't just in the, in India, but in the UK and in Scotland and England and. Switzerland, Russia, and America, and <clears throat> Australia as well. A lot of com- uh, countries had these small organizations, usually amateurs, who were testing rockets as a delivery mechanism. And in India, Stephen Smith, in 1935, he conducted an experiment where he put, and this is a very basic rocket, pretty much like a firework, really. And what he did was he got a uh, a big rocket and he got uh, chicks 
chickens, uh, very small chicks, <laughs> two of them. Oh, no, this isn't going to end happily, is it? No, it did, actually. Oh, yeah, this is the amazing thing. It's, it's one of the surprises. He sent these two chicks across a river using a rocket, and he makes this rather uh, uh, enlightening uh, comment that he says that the only reason why it survived is because it landed on the beach, the soft sand. Uh, they had no parachutes, no nothing. And these two chicks he, that he uh, named Adam and Eve were still happily living in a private zoo in India, in Calcutta, uh, a year or two later. So this guy, Stephen Smith, he did a lot of work in rocketry. It's fairly basic. This is 1930s technology. But what was surprising is that hardly anybody in India know, know, knows about him. And I, when I was interviewing some of the um, Israel people, these are directors of some of the largest centers in, in Israel, one of the questions I asked, him, asked them was, do you know about this guy called Stephen Smith? And they said no. And... Uh, uh, so this whole chapter, chapter five, is about his story. And interestingly, he, he died in 1951. And I was trying to find what happened to all his archives, his materials. And uh, I discovered so far, uh, I've been found that, that they were pretty much destroyed by his son who didn't have an interest and, uh, in, in, uh, in, in this activity. But his son had a daughter um, who came to England. And... Uh, uh, last year, I finally tracked her down, and she lives along with her granddaughter uh, in a place called Walthamstow. No, yeah, uh, know it well. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, I've contacted the family. They've been very polite, but they just have no interest whatsoever, which is very sad uh, in, in this kind of field. But um, so. The most revealing and interesting part was the story of Rocket Mail and Stephen Smith. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. It looks like an absolutely uh, enormous book, and uh, it, it's got so. M I'm just looking at all the chapters in it now. It's 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 very very comprehensive, and it's a, it's available now on Amazon. Is that correct? It is indeed, yeah. Or, or and all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll uh, tweet some links and, uh, yeah. You don't really hear much about the Indian Space Programme, even though it's unbelievably successful and seems to be absolutely flying. Uh, and, and that's the issue about spending so much money on the Human Spaceflight Programme. You know, apart from not paying its um, workers very much, um, not uh, taking these funds away from other projects and, and the return from this is not as scientifically exciting as elsewhere. But they don't spend much money on um, uh, on communicating. Mm. You know, they, if you want to go and see a launch, uh, right now you can't. They have no facilities for you. And they are recently they've just announced that they are building a visitor center. So in a four or five years' time, that will change. And they also announced that they're going to be building more space museums. At the moment, the museum I referred to earlier was in Kerala, and it's part of a large Israel campus, and it's very difficult to get on there um, without prior uh, notice. So by having smaller space museums, as they call them, throughout India, which are open to the public, um, and, and Facebook and um, Twitter, their Twitter feed, they actually are doing something. It's very sad in terms of the quantity and quality, but yeah, it, it is 
the reason why you don't hear about it is because they don't invest in it that much. And now it, Israel's Twitter feed, and just at Israel, it's about a million and a half followers. But the number of tweets is not very substantial. And beyond the tweets, there's a, there is Facebook, but not much more than that. But this yeah. is another area that they can really work on. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering that uh, India's population is... is <laughs> Quite considerably bigger than one million. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In fact, it has now exceeded that of China. It's about one point three billion now. Yeah. That. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? That, that mm. it's. It's. Yeah. I mean. I mean. It, it, it's. It's actually. The, it's not just the space. It's not. It's not their space program, is it? Really. I mean, you hear a lot more about China than you do about India, but India's such a large economy and such a large place so so populous isn't it if you add china and india together there's two-thirds of the world's population right there yeah have you ever been to india no i would absolutely love to go to india uh, it, it, and, and now you and now you said i was thinking yeah it'd be quite good to go see one of the launches of, yeah uh, yeah i mean that would be spe- uh, did you, have you presumed did you actually get to see a launch or have you just yeah i i did three visits to India as part of the research. And in each uh, occasion, I went to the headquarters. And on tw- two of the, equa- uh, two of the um, instances, I went to Sri Quarter to watch a launch. On the first attempt, they had a failure. Uh, there was a leak in one of the strap-ons for um, the, um, uh, the boosters. And so the launch was aborted. <laughs> so my very yeah. first launch attempt uh, was uh, didn't work out very well, but the second one uh, was launching one of their um, uh, navigation satellites was successful. So yes, I did get there, but I went as part of the press. Thank you very much for 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 taking the time and telling me and the listeners about the Indian Space Program. I can highly recommend this book. It's it's certainly a, a labour of love. How long did it take you to to write it? Um, well, I finished my first book which is about the trip of uh, Yuri Gagarin to England in 2011. And I think I started this one in early part of 2012. So it's almost six years. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Mm. So your, but your book about Yuri Gagarin, is that, st- is that still available as well? Yeah, I, mean, I have a website. I'll send you a link. Mm. Uh, it's certainly available through that website. But uh, uh, I'm not sure which... Um, booksellers might have this available but certainly the link I'll give you uh, that that will have uh, uh, some availability. Thank you very much Thank you and thanks uh, to, to you and Jamie for doing Interplanetary It's uh, I know it's a lot of work but uh, well done. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! He's just great isn't he? Brilliant, do you know what I, I, I really want to get him on again because uh, I've got many more questions now I think everyone has brilliant stuff Jamie yeah. Do you want to hear my space fact? It better be good. It's a space fact based on Gaia data and Ooh. number crunching that people have been doing on this Gaia data. If you don't mention white dwarfs, then I'm leaving. Well, luckily for you, the sun will be a giant crystal in 10 billion years. A giant crystal? The sun will be a giant crystal in 10 billion years. Yeah. A crystal, wow. a big crystal. Are you sure? <laughs> well, almost positive. So data captured by ESA's Gaia has revealed how white dwarfs, the dead remnants of stars like our sun, 
turn into solid spheres as the hot gas inside them cools down. Wow. So we talked about this uh, on our sun sun edition of the yes. podcast a few weeks we ago. Did. So and and how it ends up getting there. But using this data, they really have started to nail down certain things. And actually, this is more about how um, this uh, crystallization process has been mm. making a lot of these white dwarfs seem younger than they actually are. So um, this study is by a guy called Pierre-Emmanuel Tremblay of the University of Warwick here in the UK. And he said, with Gaia, we now have the distance, brightness and colour of hundreds of thousands of white dwarfs for a sizable sample in the outer disk of the Milky Way, spanning a range of initial masses and all kinds of ages. So that was always the problem. They just didn't yeah. have enough. Uh, the distances to white dwarfs weren't measured accurately enough. And as a result, they weren't able to gauge the true brightness of each of those stars, but mm. now they can. So they can see these. Not only do they know how far away they are, they know how bright they are exactly. So it's really important. So as these white dwarfs cool down, they obviously are emitting thermal radiation to do so, and, and you see them as faint objects. The cooling of these white dwarfs takes billions of years. But at some point, as the star's core starts to crystallise, in the same way that water turns into ice at naught degrees, this kind of happens at about 10 million degrees centigrade, it slows down the evolution of the white dwarf. So the dead star stops dimming and appears about 2 billion years younger than they actually are. Because it kind of, the, the, as it crystallizes, it stops down, it, it, it slows down the appearance of aging of these white dwarfs. God, that's just insane. Yeah, so they, they're going to have to go away and develop these crystallization models to get more accurate estimates of the ages of, of these different white dwarf systems. But what it has shown is that the sun will take about 5 billion years to um, crystallize once it becomes a white dwarf. And, and the sun is about 5 billion years away from becoming a white dwarf. So in about 10 billion years, if it's going to be a massive, reasonably cold crystal in the middle of our solar system. That is absolutely... I, I just love that. Could we get some pictures from some lovely artists up online, please, of, of your vision <laughs> of our crystal sun? See, in my, in my head, Matt, it's like a, it's like a, a, a diamond the size of the, the sun. I'm guessing <laughs> it's not going to be as clear as that. Do you know what? I, th I, I believe there are... Those kind of structures out there, Jamie, without what? being silly. Yeah. Okay. We need to do we need to do a show on this. Crystal structures in space. Let's wow. do it next week. The future's here. How can people get involved with the podcast? What I'd love people to do is head over to iTunes. And if you enjoyed this rambling from us, then you can give us a review. If you want to give us five stars, it means that other people uh, can find our show. And that would be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be absolutely brilliant. I'll tell you what else they can do, Matt. They can head over to our website, interplanetary.org.uk, and everything's on there. You can check out our social media. You can become a Patreon if you're feeling so generous as to donate to our ad-free podcast. Mm -hmm. Then we'd love you forever. 
you get extra content, you get to help produce the show, and more importantly, you get to go to the Crystal Sun in 10 billion years' time. We're going to arrange that for you. This isn't fake news. And you can and you can go and subscribe to us on Spotify these days. Can you? We're on Spotify. Oh yeah, I keep forgetting. It's been brilliant. We've we've had a fantastic start to the year. The the listenership's gone up yet again, and I'm really, 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 really chuffed. And, and uh, we love you all. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much. And uh, to our new listeners, welcome. We've got great interviews in the can. We've got great interviews coming up. Don't forget, we're going to Orbex. Get some questions. Get over some to questions us. ready for the Highlands trip to Orbex next week. What would you like to know? There'll be other people there as well. So I'm sure there'll be representatives of the UK Space Agency, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe you want to uh, ask them about all the new companies and billions of jobs that have been created. Well, I say billions of jobs. That's ridiculous. We're not employing the entire world, are we? Ridiculous. But I like your your positive attitude, Matt. Right. I'm off to um, write a song called Lunar Magma. What are you up to, Matt? I'm off to write a song based on uh, the theme music, uh, Richard Strauss's music from 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, where it's going to tell the readers to like and subscribe so that we don't have to keep saying it over and over again and waste everyone's time and we can do it in a nice, fun way. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds fun to me. Here we go. Lunar magma floating in space. Lunar magma explodes in your face. You rhymed space and face there. That's very good. Love you loads, Spodcats. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.